0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, a story called The Return of Imray by Rudyard Kipling. And I'll give you a little background on Kipling. Kipling was an English short story writer, poet, and novelist. He wrote tales and poems of British soldiers in India and stories for children. He was born in Bombay. In the Bombay Presidency of British India, and was taken by his family to England when he was five years old. In 1907, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature, making him the first English language writer to receive that prize, and its youngest recipient to date. Among other honors, he was sounded out for the British poet laureateship, and on several occasions for a knighthood, all of which he declined. Kipling's subsequent reputation has changed according to the political and social climate of the age, and the resulting contrasting views about him continued for much of the 20th century. George Orwell called him a prophet of British imperialism. Literary critic Douglas Kerr wrote, Kipling is still an author who can inspire passionate disagreement, and his place in literary and cultural history is far from settled. But as the age of the European empires recedes is recognized as an incomparable, if controversial, interpreter of how empire was experienced. That, and an increasing recognition of his extraordinary narrative gifts, make him a force to be reckoned with. How very true. I enjoy Kipling's work very much. Some call him racist. I think the description that he was an interpreter of the empire is very true, and we have to look at the history, not through the light of today. But, through the light of what was happening then, and now the return of Imre by Rudyard Kipling, Imre achieved the impossible without warning, for no conceivable motive, in his youth, at the threshold of his career, he chose to disappear from the world, which is to say, the little Indian station where he lived. One day he was alive. "'well, happy, and in great evidence "'among the billiard-tables at his club. "'Upon a morning, he was not, "'and no manner of search could make sure "'where he might be. "'He had stepped out of his place. "'He had not appeared at his office at the proper time, "'and his dog-cart was not upon the public roads. "'For these reasons, and because he was hampering, "'in a microscopical degree, "'the administration of the Indian Empire,' That empire paused for one microscopic moment to make inquiry into the fate of Imre. Ponds were dragged, wells were plumbed, telegrams were dispatched down the lines of railways and to the near seaport town, twelve hundred miles away. But Imre was not at the end of the drag ropes nor the telegraph wires. He was gone, and his place knew him no more. Then the work of the great Indian Empire swept forward, because it could not be delayed, and Imre, from being a man, became a mystery. Such a thing as men talk over at their tables in the club for a month, and then forget utterly. His guns, horses, and carts were sold to the highest bidder. His superior officer wrote an altogether absurd letter to his mother, saying that Imre had unaccountably disappeared, and his bungalow stood empty. After three or four months of the scorching hot weather had gone by, my friend Strickland, of the police, saw fit to rent the bungalow from the native landlord. This was before he was engaged to Miss Uguy, an affair which had been described in another place, and while he was pursuing his investigations into native life. His own life was sufficiently peculiar, and men complained of his manners and customs. I'm going to add a narrator's note at this point, "'and let you know that the name Imre is Hungarian, "'and Hungarian is still considered by some "'to have Asian or Oriental roots. "'Strickland's own life was sufficiently peculiar, "'and men complained of his manners and customs. "'There was always food in his house, "'but there were no regular times for meals. "'He ate standing up and walking about, "'whatever he might find at the sideboard. "'And this is not good for human beings.' His domestic equipment was limited to six rifles, three shotguns, five saddles, and a collection of stiff jointed massier rods, bigger and stronger than the largest salmon rods. These occupied one half of his bungalow, and the other half was given up to Strickland and his dog Teetins, an enormous rampur slut who devoured daily the rations of two men. She spoke to Strickland in a language of her own, and whenever walking abroad, SHE SAW THINGS CALCULATED TO DESTROY THE PEACE OF HER MAJESTY THE QUEEN EMPRESS. SHE RETURNED TO HER MASTER AND LAID INFORMATION. STRICKLAND WOULD TAKE STEPS AT ONCE, AND THE END OF HIS LABORS WAS TROUBLE AND FINE AND IMPRISONMENT FOR OTHER PEOPLE. THE NATIVES BELIEVED THAT Teachins WAS A FAMILIAR SPIRIT AND TREATED HER WITH THE GREAT REVERENCE THAT IS BORN OF HATE AND FEAR. ONE ROOM IN THE BUNGALOW WAS SET APART FOR HER SPECIAL USE. She owned a bedstead, a blanket, and a drinking trough, and if anyone came into Strickland's room at night, her custom was to knock down the invader and give tongue till someone came with a light. Strickland owed his life to her, when he was on the frontier, in search of a local murderer who came in the grey dawn to send Strickland much farther than the Adamant Islands. Tachins caught the man as he was crawling into Strickland's tent with a dagger between his teeth. And after his record of iniquity was established in the eyes of the law, he was hanged. From that date, Teachins wore a collar of rough silver and employed a monogram on her night blanket, and the blanket was of double woven cashmere cloth, for she was a delicate dog. Under no circumstances would she be separated from Strickland, and once, when he was ill with fever, made great trouble for the doctors because she did not know how to help her master and would not allow another creature to attempt aid. McCarnut, of the Indian Medical Service, beat her over her head with a gun-butt before she could understand that she must give room for those who could give quinine. A short time after Strickland had taken Imray's bungalow, my business took me through that station, and naturally, the club quarters being full, I quartered myself upon Strickland. It was a desirable bungalow, eight-roomed and heavily thatched against any chance of leakage from rain. Under the pitch of the roof ran a ceiling-cloth which looked just as neat as a whitewashed ceiling. The landlord had repainted it when Strickland took the bungalow. Unless you knew how Indian bungalows were built, you would never have suspected that above the cloth lay the dark, three-cornered cavern of the roof, where the beams and underside of the thatch harbored all manner of rats, bats, ants, and foul things. Teachins met me in the veranda with a bay like the boom of the bell of St. Paul's, putting her paws on my shoulder to show she was glad to see me. Strickland had contrived to claw together a sort of meal when he called lunch, and immediately after it was finished went out about his business. I was left alone with Teachins and my own affairs. The heat of the summer had broken up and turned to the warm damp of the rains. There was no motion in the heated air, but the rain felt like ramrods on the earth, and flung up a blue mist when it splashed back. The bamboos and the custard apples, the poinsettias and the mango trees in the garden stood still while the warm water lashed through them, and the frogs began to sing among the aloe hedges. A little before the light failed, and when the rain was at its worst, I sat in the back veranda and heard the water roar from the eaves. AND SCRATCHED MYSELF BECAUSE I WAS COVERED WITH THE THING CALLED PRICKLY HEAT. TEACHINGS CAME OUT WITH ME, AND PUT HER HEAD IN MY LAP, AND WAS VERY SORROWFUL, SO I GAVE HER BISCUITS WHEN TEA WAS READY, AND I TOOK TEA IN THE BACK VERANDA ON ACCOUNT OF THE LITTLE COOLNESS FOUND THERE. THE ROOMS OF THE HOUSE WERE DARK BEHIND ME. I COULD SMELL STRICKLAND'S SADDLERY AND THE OIL ON HIS GUNS, AND I HAD NO DESIRE TO SIT AMONG THESE THINGS. "'My own servant came to me in the twilight, the muslin of his clothes clinging tightly to his drenched body, and told me that a gentleman had called and wished to see someone. "'Very much against my will, but only because of the darkness of the rooms, I went into the naked drawing-room, telling my man to bring the lights. "'There might or might not have been a caller waiting. "'It seemed to me that I saw a figure by one of the windows.' "'but when the lights came there was nothing "'save the spikes of the rain without "'and the smell of the drinking earth in my nostrils. "'I explained to my servant "'that he was no wiser than he ought to be, "'and went back to the veranda to talk to Teachins. "'She had gone out into the wet, "'and I could hardly coax her back to me, "'even with biscuits with sugar-tops. "'Strickland came home, "'dripping wet, just before dinner, "'and the first thing he said was, "'Has anyone called?' I explained, with apologies, that my servant had summoned me into the drawing-room on a false alarm, or that some loafer had tried to call on Strickland, thinking better of it, had fled after giving his name. Strickland ordered dinner without comment, and since it was a real dinner with a white tablecloth attached, we sat down. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. And now back to The Return of Imre. By Rudyard Kipling. At nine o'clock, Strickland wanted to go to bed, and I was tired too. Teachins, who had been lying underneath the table, rose up and swung into the least exposed veranda as soon as her master moved to his own room, which was next to the stately chamber set apart for Teachins. If a mere wife had wished to sleep out of doors in that pelting rain, it would not have mattered, but Teachins was a dog, and therefore the better animal. I looked at Strickland, expecting to see him flay her with a whip. He smiled queerly, as the man would smile after telling some unpleasant domestic tragedy. "'She has done this ever since I moved in here,' said he. "'Let her go.' The dog was Strickland's dog, so I said nothing, but I felt all that Strickland felt in being thus made light of. is encamped outside my bedroom window, and storm after storm came up. "'thundered on the thatch, and died away. "'The lightning spattered the sky "'as a thrown egg spatters a barn door, "'but the light was pale blue, not yellow, "'and looking through my split bamboo blinds, "'I could see the great dog standing, "'not sleeping, in the veranda, "'the hackles a lift on her back, "'and her feet anchored as tensely "'as the drawn wire rope of a suspension bridge. "'In the very short pauses of the thunder, "'I tried to sleep,' but it seemed that someone wanted me very urgently. He, whoever he was, was trying to call me by name, but his voice was no more than a husky whisper. The thunder ceased, and teachings went into the garden and howled at the low moon. Somebody tried to open my door, walked about and about through the house, and stood breathing heavily in the veranda, and just when I was falling asleep I fancied that I heard a wild hammering and clamoring "'Above my head or on the door. "'I ran into Strickland's room "'and asked him whether he was ill "'and had been calling for me. "'He was lying on his bed half-dressed, "'a pipe in his mouth. "'I thought you'd come,' he said. "'Have I been walking round the house recently?' "'I explained that he had been tramping "'in the dining-room and the smoking-room "'and two or three other places, "'and he laughed and told me to go back to bed.' I went back to bed and slept till the morning, but through all my mixed dreams I was sure I was doing someone an injustice in not attending to his wants. What those wants were I could not tell, but a fluttering, whispering, bolt-fumbling, lurking, loitering someone was reproaching me for my slackness, and half-awake I heard the howling of teachings in the garden, and the threshing of the rain." I lived in that house for two days. Strickland went to his office daily, leaving me alone for eight or ten hours with Teachins for my only companion. As long as the full light lasted I was comfortable, and so was Teachins. But in the twilight she and I moved into the back veranda and cuddled each other for company. We were alone in the house, but nonetheless it was much too fully occupied by a tenant with whom I did not wish to interfere.' I never saw him, but I could see the curtains between the rooms quivering where he had just passed through. I could hear the chairs creaking as the bamboos sprung under a weight that had just quitted them, and I could feel when I went to get a book from the dining-room that somebody was waiting in the shadows of the front veranda till I should have gone away. Teachings made the twilight more interesting by glaring into the darkened rooms with every hair erect "'and following the motions of something that I could not see. "'She never entered the rooms, but her eyes moved interestedly. "'That was quite sufficient. "'Only when my servant came to trim the lamps "'and make all light inhabitable, "'she would come in with me and spend her time sitting on her haunches, "'watching an invisible extra man as he moved about behind my shoulder. "'Dogs are cheerful companions.' "'I explained to Strickland,' gently as might be, that I would go over to the club and find myself quarters there. I admired his hospitality, was pleased with his guns and rods, but I did not much care for his house and its atmosphere. He heard me out to the end, and then smiled very wearily, but without contempt, for he is a man who understands things. "'Stay on,' he said, and see what this thing means.' "'All you have talked about I have known since I took the bungalow. "'Stay on and wait. "'Teachings has left me. "'Are you going to?' "'I would seen him through one little affair "'connected with a heathen idol "'that had brought me to the doors of a lunatic asylum, "'and I had no desire to help him through further experiences. "'He was a man to whom unpleasantnesses arrived "'as do dinners to ordinary people.' Therefore, I explained more clearly than ever that I liked him immensely, and would be happy to see him in the daytime, but that I did not care to sleep under his roof. This was after dinner, when teachers had gone out to line the veranda. Upon my soul, I don't wonder, said Strickland, with his eyes on the ceiling cloth. Look at that! THE TAILS OF TWO BROWN SNAKES WERE HANGING BETWEEN THE CLOTH AND THE CORNERS OF THE WALL. THEY THREW LONG SHADOWS IN THE LAMPLIGHT. "'If you are afraid of snakes, of course,' said Strickland. "'I hate and fear snakes, because if you look into the eyes of any snake, you will see that it knows all and more of the mystery of man's fall, and that it feels all the contempt that the devil felt when Adam was evicted from Eden.' "'besides which its bite is generally fatal, and it twists up trouser legs. "'You ought to get this thatch overhauled,' I said. "'Give me a man's rod and we'll poke him down.' "'They'll hide among the roof-beams,' said Strickland. "'I can't stand snakes overhead. I'm going up into the roof. "'If I shake them down, stand by with a cleaning-rod and break their backs.' I was not anxious to assist Strickland in his work, but I took the cleaning-rod and waited in the dining-room, while Strickland brought a gardener's ladder from the veranda and set it against the side of the room. The snake-tails drew themselves up and disappeared. We would hear the dry, rushing scuttle of long bodies running over the baggy ceiling cloth Strickland took a lamp with him, while I tried to make clear to him the danger of hunting roof-snakes between a ceiling cloth and a thatch. "'apart from the deterioration of property "'caused by ripping out ceiling-cloths.' "'Nonsense,' said Strickland. "'They're sure to hide near the walls by the cloth. "'The bricks are too cold for them, "'and the heat of the room is just what they like.' "'He put his hand to the corner of the stuff "'and ripped it from the cornice. "'It gave with a great sound of tearing, "'and Strickland put his head through the opening "'into the dark of the angle of the roof-beams. "'I set my teeth and lifted the rod.' "'for I had not the least knowledge of what might descend.' "'Hm!' said Strickland, "'and his voice rolled and rumbled in the roof. "'There's room for another set of rooms up here, "'and by jove, someone is occupying them.' "'Snakes?' I said from below. "'No, it's a buffalo. "'Hand me up the two last joints of a masher rod, "'and I'll prod it. "'It's lying on the main roof beam.' I handed up the rod. "'What's a nest for owls and serpents? No wonder the snakes live here,' said Strickland, climbing farther into the roof. I could see his elbow thrusting with the rod. "'Come out of that, whoever you are. "'Head's below there. It's falling.' I saw the ceiling-cloth nearly in the center of the room, bagged with a shape that was pressing it downwards and downwards towards the lighted lamp on the table. "'so I snatched the lamp out of danger and stood back. "'Then the cloth ripped out from the walls, "'tore, split, swayed, and shot down upon the table, "'something that I dared not look at, "'till Strickland had slid down the ladder "'and was standing by my side. "'He did not say much, being a man of few words, "'but he picked up the loose end of the tablecloth "'and threw it over the remnants on the table. "'It strikes me,' said he. "'Pulling down the lamp. "'Our friend Imray has come back.' "'Oh! "'You would, would you?' "'There was a movement under the cloth, "'and a little snake wriggled out "'to be backbroken by the butt of the man's searod. "'I was sufficiently sick "'to make no remarks worth recording.' "'Strickland meditated "'and helped himself to drinks. "'The arrangement under the cloth "'made no more signs of life. "'Is, is that Imray?' "'I said.' "'Strickland turned back the cloth for a moment and looked. "'It is Imre,' he said, "'and his throat is cut from ear to ear. "'Then we spoke, both together and to ourselves. "'That's why he whispered about the house. "'Teachins in the garden began to bay furiously. "'A little later her great nose heaved open the dining-room door. "'She sniffed and was still.' The tattered ceiling cloth hung down almost to the level of the table, and there was hardly room to move away from the discovery. Teachins came in and sat down, her teeth bared under her lip and her forepaws planted. She looked at Strickland. Yeah, it's a bad business, old lady, said he. Men don't climb up into the roofs of their bungalows to die, and they don't fasten up the ceiling cloth behind them. So let's think this out. "'Let's think it out somewhere else,' I said. "'Excellent idea! Turn the lamps out. We'll go to my room.' "'I did not turn the lamps out. I went into Strickland's room first and allowed him to make the darkness. Then he followed me, and we lit tobacco and thought. Strickland thought. I smoked furiously, because I was afraid. Imray is back,' said Strickland. The question is—' "'Who killed Imre?' "'Don't talk. "'I've a notion of my own. "'When I took this bungalow, "'I took over most of Imre's servants. "'Imre was guileless and inoffensive, wasn't he?' "'I agreed, though the heap under the cloth "'had looked neither one thing nor the other. "'If I call in all the servants, "'they'll stand fast in a crowd and lie like Aryans. "'What do you suggest?' "'Call them in one by one.' "'I said. "'They'll run away and give the news to all their fellows,' said Strickland. "'We must segregate him. "'Do you suppose your servant knows anything about it?' "'He might, for all I know. "'But I don't think it's likely. "'He's only been here two or three days,' I answered. "'What's your notion?' "'I can't quite tell. "'How the Dickens did the man get the wrong side of the ceiling cloth There was a heavy coughing outside Strickland's bedroom door. This showed that Bahadur Khan, his body-servant, had waked from sleep and wished to put Strickland to bed. "'Come in,' said Strickland. "'It's a very warm night, isn't it?' Bahadur Khan, a great, green-turbaned, six-foot Mohammedan, said that it was a very warm night, but that there was more rain pending, which, by his honour's favour, would bring relief to the country.' "'It will be so, if God pleases,' said Strickland, tugging off his boots. "'It is in my mind, Bahadur Khan, that I have worked thee remorselessly for many days, ever since that time when thou first earnest into my service. What time was that?' "'Has the heaven-born forgotten?' "'It was when Imre Sahib went secretly to Europe without warning given, and I even, I came into the honoured service of the protector of the poor.' "'And Ibray Sahib went to Europe? "'It is so said among those who were his servants. "'And thou wilt take service with him when he returns? "'Assuredly, Sahib. "'He was a good master and cherished his dependents.' "'That is true. "'I am very tired. "'But I go buck-shooting to-morrow. "'Give me the little sharp rifle that I use for black buck. "'It's in the case yonder.' "'The man stooped over the case, handed barrels, stock, and forend to Strickland, "'who fitted all together, yawning dolefully. "'Then he reached down to the gun-case, took a solid-drawn cartridge, "'and slipped it into the breech of the 360 Express. "'And Imre Sahib has gone to Europe secretly. "'That's very strange, Bahadur Khan, is it not?' "'What do I know of the ways of the white man, heaven-born?' "'Very little, truly, but thou shalt know more anon. "'It has reached me that Imre Sahib has returned from his so long journeyings, "'and that even now he lies in the next room, waiting his servant.' "'Sahib!' "'The lamplight slid along the barrels of the rifle "'as they leveled themselves at Bahadur Khan's broad breast. "'Go and look,' said Strickland. "'Take a lamp. "'Thy master is tired.' And he waits thee. Go. The man picked up a lamp and went into the dining room, Strickland following, and almost pushing him with the muzzle of the rifle. He looked for a moment at the black depths behind the ceiling cloth, at the writhing snake underfoot, and last a grey glaze settling on his face, at the thing under the tablecloth. Hast thou seen? said Strickland, after a pause. "'Yes, I've seen. "'I'm clay in the white man's hands. "'What does the presence do? "'Hang thee within the month. "'What else?' "'For killing him? "'Nay, Sahib, consider. "'Walking among us, his servants, "'he cast his eyes upon my child, "'who was four years old. "'Him he bewitched, "'and in ten days he died of the fever.' my child. What said Imre Sahib? He said he was a handsome child, and patted him on the head. Wherefore my child died, wherefore I killed Imre Sahib in the twilight, when he had come back from office, and was sleeping. Wherefore I dragged him up into the roof beams, and made all fast behind him. The heaven-born knows all things. I am the servant of the heaven-born. Strickland looked at me above the rifle, and said, IN THE VERNACULAR, "'THOU ART WITNESS TO THIS scene; HE'S A MURDERER.' Bahadur Khan stood ashen gray in the light of the one lamp. The need for justification came upon him very swiftly. "'I am trapped,' he said. "'But the offense was that man's. He cast an evil eye upon my child, and I killed and hit him. Only such as are served by devils.' He glared at Teachins, couched stolidly before him. Only such could know what I did. It was clever, Con, but thou should have lashed him to the beam with a rope. Now thou wilt hang by a rope. Orderly. A drowsy policeman answered Strickland's call. He was followed by another, and Teachins sat wondrous still. Take him to the police station, said Strickland. There's a case toward. Do I hang then? said Bahadur Khan, making no attempt to escape and keeping his eyes on the ground. If the sun shines or the water runs, yes, said Strickland. Bahadur Khan stepped back one long pace, quivered, and stood still. The two policemen awaited further orders. Go, said Strickland. Nay, but I go very swiftly, said Bahadur Khan. Look, I am even now a dead man. He lifted his foot, and to the little toe there clung the head of a half-killed snake, firm fixed in the agony of death. I come of land-holding stock, said Bahadur Khan, rocking where he stood. It were a disgrace to me to go to the public scaffold, therefore I take this way. "'Be it remembered that the Sahib's shirts are correctly enumerated, "'and that there's an extra piece of soap in his washbasin. "'My child was bewitched, and I slew the wizard. "'Why should you seek to slay me with the rope? "'My honor is saved, and—and and I die. "'At the end of an hour he died. "'As they die he were bitten by the little brown karate. "'and the policemen bore him and the thing under the tablecloth "'to their appointed places. "'All were needed to make clear the disappearance of Imre.' "'This,' said Strickland, very calmly, as he climbed into bed, "'is called the nineteenth century. "'Did you hear what that man said?' "'I heard,' I answered. "'Imre made a mistake.' "'simply and solely through not knowing the nature of the Oriental "'and the coincidence of a little seasonal fever. "'Bahadur Khan had been with him for four years.' "'I shuddered. "'My own servant had been with me for exactly that length of time. "'When I went over to my own room, I found my man waiting, "'impassive as the copper hit on a penny, to pull off my boots. "'What has befallen Bahadur Khan?' said I. "'He was bitten by a snake and died. "'The rest the Sahib knows,' was the answer. "'And how much of this matter hast thou known?' I asked. "'As much as might be gathered from one coming in the twilight to seek satisfaction.' "'Gently, Sahib, let me pull off those boots.' "'I had just settled to the sleep of exhaustion "'when I heard Strickland shouting from his side of the house.' Tangiers has come back to her place. And so she had. The great deerhound was couched stately on her own bedstead on her own blanket, while in the next room the idle empty ceiling cloth waggled as it trailed on the table. Thanks for joining us for the return of Imray by Rudyard Kipling. Hope you enjoyed this story. If you did, Please do share with others, and please do send us a review, or, if you're on Spotify, a comment. We always appreciate reviews and comments for 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We do have a recent review that just came in yesterday. Absolutely the best podcast, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, five stars. I stumbled across 1001 Short Stories and Tales podcast about a year ago, and I've been hooked ever since. I've never been much of a reader, So having this podcast has been an eye-opening experience to all the great writers and classic short story literature out there. John's not only a great reader, but his passion for classic literature is obvious and contagious. This podcast is my favorite of all the growing 1001 series that John produces. If you're thinking of giving the show a try, I guarantee you'll enjoy it. I also want to encourage all you regular listeners out there to sign up to financially support this podcast. If everyone who really enjoys this show gave just $1 a month, we'd really hope ensure John could continue this for a long time. God bless you, John. That one from at Storm and Norman, Apple Podcast. At Storm and Norman, thank you so much for your support. We appreciate it. And for those of you who would like to become associate producers here, please do visit us at Patreon, P A T R E O N, patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. We appreciate our Patreon supporters very, very much. Until next time, everyone, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.